Hello, Dylan from None Dare Call It Ordinary here. Want to remind all our listeners that this Saturday, September 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be having our top of the month live stream. This time you can join us over at Twitch. If you go to nondarecalledordinary.com slash Twitch, you will get a direct link to our live stream. And then once our live stream on Twitch is done, we will be having a special surprise back on our Discord channel. More information will be available on our Twitch page. So once again, that will be Saturday, September 5th, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And now on with the episode. Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs found at the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the consecrated Brent. Oh, that's nice. That's a perfect one, actually. It is a perfect one. I thought one. you would have went with Catholic, but that's, that's that's even more... That's too easy. Yeah. It's also unclear if anything we're talking about is Catholic or not Catholic. <laughs> that's part of... What folks are going to be fighting about, I imagine. Right. And speaking of uh, consecrated, we can consecrate a new patron. Yes, finally. Sarah F. is uh, our uh, 25th patron. And so now we can go back to officially and legitimately releasing the Duke's bonus episodes, uh, yeah. which I'm very happy about. Uh, so thank you again very much for your patronage. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash call it ordinary for five dollars a month. You'll get access to our weekly bonus episodes. All right, Dylan. So what are we talking about today? Well, today we are once again returning to Set of Acontism. Yes. Specifically, we are discussing the book True or False Pope Refuting Set of Acontism and Other Modern Errors by John Salza and Robert Sisko. Or otherwise known as 700 Pages of Anti-Set of Acontist Hyperventilations by one Reverend Anthony Chicada. That's right. If, if, if listeners recall from our five part, you know, set of cuts series, who that guy is, the meatloaf. Yeah, man. he was he was the meatloaf man. Yeah. The meatloaf man. Uh, uh, Father Chicada. Right. Um, and one thing we will say. So we are officially on a fortnightly schedule. But for this series, we're doing it once a week. We're doing this series once a week. We just it's 700 pages. It's 700 pages. It's a lot. And we don't want to be talking about this book for like a couple months. Uh, so we're going to reduce it down to hopefully just four parts. Just one month of anti set of a contest content for everyone. And I also want to say right up top, we almost had to not do this series mm. because we weren't sure if we were going to actually get the book because we bought this book. Yeah. All right. We're going to say that right up top. We bought the book. It's quite expensive. Uh, frankly. Yeah. And it took a long time for it to get to us. Literally the day before we were going to like initiate the PayPal, like dispute resolution mm -hmm. thing. We got the book. Nick. So it was an act of the uh, one true Pope, uh, Pope Michael uh, wanted us to have this book to spread the message of how bad I, I guess, <laughs> I guess that's his, uh, that's his story. So let's get into this book. Salsa and Cisco, they identify the main problem with set of and what they call the conservative position, which they identify that with the belief that everything the Pope does is infallible and that whatever he says or does is mm -hmm. good and true. The conservatives 
as they use this phrase, combine this claim with the premise that the teachings of Vatican II onward were approved by the Pope, and therefore they are true and good, although perhaps misinterpreted. So that's kind of the conservative position. It's unclear why they refer to this as a conservative position. I suspect they are not sure either because they use scare quotes <laughs> yeah, so whenever they mention is, So Sal, see if I'm if I'm right about this. So Salza and Cisco are they're kind of in the middle of the spectrum. It's like they they aren't as extreme, I guess, as set of a contest, but they but they are the R&R, the SSPX crowd like them. They're they're more extreme than just say like your normal conservative Catholics in in the pew every day, and they're totally fine with the Vatican II shit for the most part. But because they aren't considered truly conservative by Sal's and Cisco standards, I guess I'm not sure. Yeah, that I think that's sense, about but. that's about right because okay. basically they agree with the set of a contests that Vatican II Is was not, garbage. Right. Right. So I mean they they have the typical SSPX view, the kind of the Lefebvre view where. You know, basically like Vatican II really sucked. That was all a big mistake. But that doesn't mean that the Pope is not the Pope. Right. Because all the Vatican II stuff, we're going to get into this a little bit, was not declared a doctrine of the church. Mm -hmm. It was not something required by the ascent of faith. Right. Okay. Basically. So, yeah. So they're definitely they're in the middle. Vatican II sucks, but we got a Pope. That's the basic view. And to kind of go off on this, the, the set of a contests, they start with the same claim that everything a Pope does is infallible. Everything the Pope does is true and good. And the set of a contest, they start with that same claim, but they combine it with the premise that the Vatican II teachings were garbage mm. and thus could not have come from a true Pope. So that's kind of the the way these two folks are arguing with each other. But both the set of a contests and the quote unquote conservatives have the wrong initial premise. Instead, the Pope is only infallible, quote, when he invokes Christ's gift of infallibility. Man, how bad would it be if the Pope accidentally invoked his infallibility or something, something totally dumb? Oh, yeah. Assuming it's something he can control, but maybe he can slip up in his infallibility invoking from time to time. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I think they, they make the rules are such that they make it hard to slip up. I mm. think that's part of the goal. They don't yeah, want it to be sense. like, you know, you can accidentally say a few words, and then boom, infallible. Right. Um, also, there are limits to because it has to be about matters of faith and morals. So you can't, for example, the Pope can't invoke infallibility to say the Mets are better than the Yankees. OK, right. right. Because that's just yeah. not it's, it's just, not the subject matter uh, for which. So there are there's built in stuff. It's like uh, the. It's like in order to declare a nuclear strike, you have the two people with the keys and they both have to t- turn them at the same time. It's mm. kind of like that. There's mm-hmm. a lot of rigmarole okay. before helps. you can uh, declare like, uh, infallibility there. And going along with this, the set of accounts were wrong because infallibility was not invoked regarding the Vatican II doctrines. In fact, infallibility has only been invoked by a pope once, mm. by Pope Pius XII in 1950, when he decreed that Mary ascended to heaven at the end of her life. So the assumption of Mary mm-hmm. is something you have to believe in to hold the Catholic faith. Yeah, I mean, of course she did. She's part of the Holy Trinity, after all, since the Our Lady is God. People taught us that since God, the father was demoted for being too Masonic. Yeah, that's uh, the Lord. Yeah, no, the, the Lord is, uh, yeah, is the Masonic Lord, and gross. And that's we right. don't even want to think about that, frankly. But the quote conservatives are also wrong because clearly Vatican II and a lot of the nonsense afterwards are clearly not good. As Salza and Cisco make perfectly clear, quote, what cannot be denied is that what we have seen thus far from Pope Francis is extremely troubling. 
During his short reign, he has publicly stated that there is no Catholic God. Atheists go to heaven. He doesn't judge sodomites. We shouldn't obsess about sins against nature. Counting prayers is Pelagian. Proselytism is solemn nonsense. Our Lady may have felt deceived during her son's passion. The souls of the damned are annihilated. Catholics shouldn't breed like rabbits. And the greatest evils afflicting the church are youth unemployment and the loneliness of the aged. Catholics are asking themselves, can a true pope speak like this? As Father Linus Clovis recently asked, there used to be a saying, rhetorical, is the pope Catholic? That's no longer funny. Indeed, it isn't funny. I mean, it's kind of funny. Yeah, it, it's a little funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 there's some humor to be found there. I, I agree. But despite all this disturbing nonsense from Pope Francis and his buddies, he has never defined any of these positions as doctrine mm. and thus has not invoked papal infallibility. It's weird. I, I thought I read going through this. I thought I read don't breed like rabbits canon law recently somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. In no. Book. Yeah, you are. Okay. That was a uh, that was a uh, from probably from the set of a contest oh, canon probably. law books, which yeah, you probably. cannot trust. Further, the authors compare the modernist crisis facing the church to the suffering of Jesus Christ himself. Quote, during the passion of Christ, the apostles retained faith in God's Old Testament revelation, e.g. the promise of the Messiah, but they lost faith that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that revelation. In the same manner, during the passion of the church, some Catholics have retained faith in God's New Testament revelation, the Catholic faith, but have lost faith in the church the mystical body of Christ and the divine repository of that revelation is passion of the church. The sequel to passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's passion of the Christ. I yes. I mean, I technically it is, it, okay. it is the sequel that is totally hundred percent accurate and canon. One person who struggled mightily with this issue is our friend, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, who is especially disturbed by the actions of Pope John Paul II in 1986 quote, the Vicar of Christ invited members of assorted pagan religions and provided each with a special room where they could offer false worship to their gods, a mortal sin against the first commandment, in the hope of attaining world peace. <sighs> That's so disturbing, that last part. Can you imagine the room service call requests from these barbaric pa pagan worshipers? Oh I my mean, God, so many. Can we get 15 goats, please, in room 1220? <laughs> we need all the goats we can get. I need a uh, double altar room, please. Sir, all we have is an altar room with a pullout altar. <laughs> is that acceptable? Or do you need That's double? fine, I'll do the little goats. But even this mortal sin from Pope John Paul II could not bring Lefebvre to pronounce definitively that the Holy See was vacant, thanks in part to what Salsa and Cisco call his, quote, prudence and sound judgment. Though that was apparently missing in 1987 when Lefebvre declared, quote, Rome is in apostasy. Rome has left the church. Oh, I think we're just going to ignore yeah. those things that Lefebvre said. Uh, yeah, I agree. Lefebvre chooses when to invoke his prudence and sound ah, judgment in the same way that go. the Pope has to invoke his infallibility. <laughs> so we need to keep that in mind. <laughs> going back to the real deal set of a contests, the authors say they are going to deal with three specific arguments throughout this book. First, that the recent popes are heretics and thus can't be true popes. Second, that the recent popes have violated papal infallibility and thus can't be true popes. And third, the new rite of Episcopal consecration is invalid and thus Benedict XVI and Francis are not bishops at all, and therefore cannot be true popes. Those are the three basic 
set of a contest arguments. Got it. This episode, however, is going to deal with something. It's unclear to me how they fit. So here's one thing about the book. It's not the best book. I know that might be hard to believe, but it's not on a structural level. It gets kind of confusing. Like, I think line by line, it's for the most part fine. Yeah. But in terms of big structure and like why things are in certain uh, chapters, it gets a little muddled. It seems like a lot of overlap. Lots of overlap. This should not be 700 pages. But the one thing we'll really be focusing on in this episode is the relationship that Salza and Cisco want to make between denying that we have a pope mm-hmm. and denying the existence of the church. That's the kind of the basic theme for their first two chapters in this episode. We're going to be talking about that. And we're going to start this section by bringing up probably the mo- one of the most important Bible passages to keep in mind during this whole series, and especially this episode, and that is Matthew Chapter 16, verse 18, quote, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I always, I don't know why, I always imagined Jesus was pointing to like a literal rock in that moment. He was just standing next to, and Catholics got this message severely wrong. And now there's, you know, like a shopping mall on top of what should have been the first church of Jesus at the foundation. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a big mistake. I mean, my, I... I thought he was actually declaring the rock was Peter. And so the rock should have been the first Pope. (laughs) I mean, that's another possible mistake. That's true. Could be. And kind of he was thinking there would be a Pope church combo scenario. This passage, according to the authors and also a whole lot of other Catholics, implies two main things. The church that Jesus Christ established is defined by a hierarchy with Peter and his successors at its head. And that this church will never cease to exist. Vatican I also made clear that Peter will have a continuous line of successors. Combined with Matthew 16, 18, this suggests that there will never be a situation where there isn't a successor to Peter, i.e. a true pope. Yep, exactly. Yet another knockdown argument for the legitimacy of Pope Michael. I, no? You might be able to <laughs> say that. That's not what these authors are saying, unfortunately. Because as you can guess... This is kind of a problem for set of a contest. Mm. Like, how do you maintain that there both is not a true pope, but also that the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church kind of if the church is defined by the hierarchy with the pope at its head? Kind yeah. of a, a big problem. To get a better grip on all this, the authors bring in the three attributes of the church. Visibility, perpetual indefectibility, and infallibility. So this is kind of this chapter and the next are focused on these three attributes and the four marks. And basically, in order to be a Catholic, you have to believe that there is a church that has these properties. Mm. And the basic argument is that if you're a set of a contest, you have to deny there is a church that has these properties, and therefore you're not really a Catholic. That's kind of the basic argument here. What's the difference between an attribute and a mark? Eh, Don't (laughs) fully understand it. Um, The main thing is that The attributes are perfections Mm -hmm. of the church. So they're things that make the church awesome. Yeah. Where the marks are just features of it. It's kind of unclear. I don't know the best way to define these differences. So let's kind of go into the individual. The individual attributes and marks are a little bit easier to understand, I think. So let's start with the first attribute, visibility. As stated earlier, the church Jesus instituted was a hierarchy headed by Peter. Saying the church is visible isn't just saying the members of the church are visible, which is just Protestant baloney, by the way. That's one thing that the authors harp on hardcore. But saying that the church is a visible social unit 
As the Council of Trent put it, quote, If anyone says that in the Catholic Church a hierarchy has not been instituted by divine ordinance, which consists of bishops, priests, and ministers, let him be anathema. Ooh, that's some tough language. Well, yeah. you know, I'm going to say, speaking as a once Protestant myself, the one thing I do know for sure is the visibility to the members of like the actual members of the church in my hometown has diminished drastically since I was young. Mm. Very small. They're they're turning invisible. Yep. The only thing worse than a visible Protestant is an invisible Protestant. Oh, God, I'm just going right. to put that out there. The second attribute is kind of a combo. It's this perpetual indefectibility. Uh, and so the first part is that the church is perpetual, meaning that it will exist until the end of time. Or until coronavirus shuts it down. Sadly, the less popular Christian Marvel ripoff film of the Avengers, the Avengers Infinity Church did not sell tickets as expected. So that's too bad. The church is also indefectible, mm. meaning it will not lose any of its attributes or marks, which we'll talk about a bit later. So it's kind of a self-referential attribute because one of the attributes is it won't lose any of these features. The last attribute is infallibility. The church teaches without error, again, quote, when she uses the fullness of her authority to define an article of faith. As mentioned before, this does not mean that everything the church teaches will be infallible. You yeah. gotta, you know, there's a whole rigmarole to be like, all right, we're now in infallibility mode. Right. And so now we're, we're sending the infallibility to you. There's a yes. whole list of things you gotta do. So here is the main argument, kind of summing up from before. Because with these attributes in mind, we can lay out what that is. First, if there is no true pope, then the church lacks one of these attributes. But the church can't lack any of these attributes. Mm -hmm. That would mean the gates of hell would have prevailed over it. This is a contradiction. Therefore, there must be a true pope. And to kind of put it in another way, quote, if they cannot point to a visible society that does possess these attributes, and they can't, it means the church as founded by Christ no longer exists. But this would mean that the indefectible church has defected, which is not possible. Boom. Okay. Case so closed. Case closed. But there's some responses. <laughs> oh. So, you know, we're fair and balanced here. We're yeah, going to deal with the responses from the set of Acontas. What do they have to say for themselves? Donald Sanborn, one of the set of Acontas bishops we discussed in our previous series, recognizes this problem. Given that the true church is visible and the Novus Ordo church ain't the true church, then where is it? He says this, quote, It is realized in those who publicly adhere to the Catholic faith and who at the same time look forward to the election of a Roman pontiff. Yeah, I mean, sorry. Sometimes you just have to wait a half century. You know, you got to be patient, haters. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to wait a couple days, sometimes 50 years. Yeah, it's, right. uh, that's the way it is. But I mean, the one thing I think, uh, I think most of our listeners can already tell this is a bunch of garbage because the visible church isn't just... The members. Uh -huh. That's Protestant garbage. Uh -huh, right. The visible church is the hierarchy. So Sanborn just saying it's whoever publicly adheres to the Catholic faith. Bullshit on you, Sanborn. <laughs> that is not what we're talking about. But amazingly, there is a even worse response than Sanborn's. Sweet. From a Mr. Metatex, who is another set of a conscious preacher. He says the visible church isn't found in the visible members of the church, but inside their hearts and minds, which, as we all know, is the most visible part of a person <laughs> is the heart and mind. But this also made me think of a set of a contest serial killer who believes this and wants to make our hearts and minds really visible. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. The Novus Ordo killer. Ooh, scary. 
Metatics taught this message on his, quote, compact disc talk <laughs> called Counterfeit Catholicism versus Consistent Catholicism. The author's final analysis of this is, quote, perhaps she should have shortened the title of his CD set to simply read Counterfeit Catholicism, as this would have more accurately described the content of his Ooh, message. Sassy. I think Compact Disc Talk was the name of the set of a contest band's version of like DC Talk. Oh, Not yeah. Not quite as well known. Yeah. Much more underground. <laughs> Not nearly as visible as they need to be. Again, yeah. I feel that the set of a contest band has to be very visible. Okay, so that's that kind of is dealing specifically with the visibility part. There needs to be a visible hierarchy that is the church. But if there's no pope, there's no visible church unless you become a Protestant fool. Mm. So let's go back to indefectibility. If Sedevacontus think that the Novus Ordo teaches heresy, then given the three attributes of the true church, the Novus Ordo cannot be the true church. They can't and they can't defect. And so if whatever's going on in the Vatican defected, it can't be the true church. Besides the problem discussed where there needs to be a true visible church somewhere, how exactly did the true church morph into the Novus Ordo? Quote, wasn't the church that existed on October 27th, 1958, during the conclave, the same church that elected and accepted John the 23rd as Pope the next day? If not, then again, where did the true church go? Up in smoke? Out to lunch? On vacation? How could the pre and post conclave churches be two different visible societies, particularly when their membership was identical, aside from a few deaths and baptisms during the time in which the conclave was convened? The basic problem, as I see it, it's about the boundary between the true church and the Novus Ordo. So if the true church is the one who signed up for heresy, thus birthing the Novus Ordo, then the true church would have defected, which is impossible. Right. Yeah, I think you summed it up perfectly, Dylan, which is why we need another, what, 700, 699 pages more to go. To yeah, we got to keep talking. We can't just end the series keep now. Trying. That It's way too short because now we need to go back to infallibility because this all it gets even worse because according to Catholic teaching, the adhesion of the church to a pope is an infallible sign of his legitimacy. Therefore, the true church, which is infallible when accepting a pope, would have wrongly accepted a false pope which is impossible. This is because, quote, the acceptance of a pope by the universal church not only provides infallible certitude of his legitimacy, but it also heals in the root any defect in the election. This means that even if there was an irregularity during the conclave, which may well have been the case, mm. the acceptance of John the 23rd by the church removes any doubt about the validity of his election. In mm. short, accepting a pope, even if the election was rigged, it makes him the Pope. That's all it takes. It doesn't matter how fucked up the election was. Right. If we're all like, yeah, he's the Pope. Boom. We And that's infallible. And so, you know, we can't fuck that up. In short, Sedevacontists have to deny that there is a visible church or adopt the Protestant heresies about what the visible church is. They have to deny there is an indefectible church since the church would have defected when a false Pope was elected and deny that there is an infallible church since the church would have accepted a false Pope. In short, the set of contests have to deny all three attributes of the true church. All right. Now we can move on to the marks of the church, because the basic argument is basically the same when it comes to the marks as the attributes. 
The authors argue that Sedevacantus are forced to accept that the church has lost one of its four marks. Mm. This entails, again, that the gates of hell have prevailed over the church, which is impossible. Thus, the Sedevacantus contradict themselves, which is, you know, bad. Well, I mean, it's only the gates of hell. It could be worse. It could be like the demonic inhabitants of what's through the gates of hell that prevailed. You know, that would be worse, I think. I, I don't don't, is there really anything worse than themselves. an open border? Mm. I think is the main mistake Good. you're making. It's an open that's border true, to hell. Right. And that on its and own that's what it represents. Got it. is disturbing. So what are these four marks? You've probably heard them somewhere because there's this kind of there's this phrase it's that we believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. That phrase right. that expresses the four marks, the oneness, holiness, Catholicity and apostolicity. Those are hard words to say, and I'm going to say them wrong at least once. <laughs> Salsa and Cisco focus mainly on apostolicity, saying that it contains the other three marks. But they do offer a quick kind of rundown of unity, holiness and Catholicity. Unity consists in unity of doctrine worship and government. The true church is united in the creeds it teaches, the sacraments it offers, and the hierarchical government that, well, governs it. Holiness consists in primarily the church's union with God via its founder, Jesus Christ. But it also consists in, quote, its means of sanctification, that of its members, and that of its charisms. Charisms being miraculous gifts and miracles. Oh, that's much clearer now. Thank you for clearing that up. You're welcome. You know, it's I invoked the charism of clarity. Catholicity or universality consists in being the universal church, having both the right to spread to all places at all times and also in doing so in fact. And it's that in fact bit that will be important later. So just keep that in your mind ball. The real star of this show is apostolicity. In short, the true church being apostolic means that it is, quote, identical with the church founded by Jesus Christ upon the apostles. But there is more to it than that, of course, as revealed by how the silly Protestants misunderstand apostolicity, quote, all of the non-Catholic churches and sects that profess to be Christian acknowledge the mark of apostolicity in some sense. But their definition always misses the mark, pun intended, in one way or another. (laughs) If only misses the Peter was a saying that would be more effective. What these Protestant Christians are missing are three elements of apostolicity. Apostolicity of government, doctrine, and membership. For our purposes, the most important is apostolicity of government, which gives Sedevacantus the biggest headache. Basically, apostolicity of government requires current bishops to be legitimate apostolic successors. Thus, Anglicans and Orthodox are not apostolic in this sense because their bishops are not legitimate, Mm. according to the Roman Catholics, of course. Oh, and according to, you know, imams and Islam. But let's not get too sidetracked here. Yeah, they've got their whole other thing going on. But it's useful to dive into the other apostolicities because we learned some crazy shit. So let's get into these other apostolicities. Uh, Starting with the apostolicity of doctrine. The true church has apostolicity of doctrine by having the same doctrines as the apostles. In short, quote, the church will never impose a heresy upon the faithful to be believed with the assent of faith. As we mentioned earlier, this is still true, even though Pope Francis says a bunch of crazy nonsense. What matters is that he has not taught this crap to be believed with the assent of faith. For example, Current church practice is for priests to remain celibate, but this is not a dogma of the church. Mm. You can believe that priests should be allowed to marry and still be part of the Catholic faith. 
Other things, like the resurrection of Jesus, for example, are non-negotiable. Denying them just is denying the Catholic faith. That also, okay, so that works the same in Protestantism. You know, some overlap here. You deny the resurrection of Christ, then you have lost your salvation, my friends. I'm sorry. Or, or maybe you were never really saved after all, or you were deceived by the devil that you were saved. This, this part's a bit confusing. Anyway, you know, we're Protestants. Just make it up as you go along. It doesn't matter. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. So much disagreement. <laughs> so much disagreement. This is why we need one church that gives us the rules. We don't need all these different groups coming up with their own rules and it gets real confusing. That's what's great. There's a Catholic catechism and like, what are the Christian rules? You just open it. Okay, that's what it says. Boom, I'm done. And this is all good to know because the church faced an incredible problem with heresy in the form of Arianism in the fourth century. And that's not to be confused with Arianism, the belief that Arian race is superior. That's different, right? Yes. No, this oh, okay. is a Arianism with an I, oh, A-R-I-A-N, not the M, not with the Y. <laughs> this Arianism is the view that Jesus was created by God the Father and is thus not co-eternal or co-substantial with mm -hmm. the Father. Like he actually uh, gave birth to him? Yeah, which makes more sense if Mary is part of the Trinity. But we're getting that's we're getting way ahead of ourselves okay. when it comes to yeah. heresies. A lot of we're kind of confusing a lot of things. So, yeah. So this denies what is called now eternal sonship, which is mm -hmm. kind of classic Christian view that the son was eternally begotten, not made. So this is a heresy, right? We just we all know that Arianism yeah, heresy. That. It turns out a lot of bishops. I mean, a lot were taken in with Arianism with Ooh. estimates ranging from 80 percent. All the way to 99% of all Jesus. bishops wow. in like the 4th, 5th century being <laughs> Arian. So that's a lot of heresy. Yeah. So why, why, so why doesn't this suggest a breakdown in apostolicity of doctrine? Yeah. Because these heretical beliefs were never imposed by the church. Most bishops were Arians, but they never said that you had to be Arian okay. to be Catholic. That's the big difference. The authors describe this as a material division in doctrine, not a formal division. It is formal divisions which caused the breakdown of the apostolicity of doctrine. And that didn't happen due to the Arian heresy. And it isn't happening right now due to the modernist heresy, mm, the informal. which is good. Got it. Yeah. Because the modernist heresy makes it hard to know what exactly is the right doctrine. After all, quote, one of the characteristics of modernism is ambiguity, confusion, and doublespeak, which obscures the faith itself, resulting in confusion for the faithful and knowing what precisely the church teaches. And I have to say, I like how ambiguity, confusion, and doublespeak are all one mm. of the characteristics of modernism. So modernism itself is also a trinity, three <laughs> and one. In the name of the Father, confusion, the Son, ambiguity, and the Holy doublespeak. Amen. Welcome to Modernist Church, everybody. All right, so that, that's all fun and games. But let's move on to apostolicity in membership because the authors start applying pressure to the set of contests when they discuss apostolicity in membership. What this means is that the church of today is numerically identical to the church founded by Jesus. Bishops have been consecrated and bishops have died, but the church itself is identical. It's just, it's the same way with the band Yes. So the band Yes, currently it has no original members anymore. <laughs> but it is still numerically identical to the band started in the 1960s. <laughs> so it's exactly the same. Now, again, this is a problem wow. for set of a contests for the reasons discussed earlier regarding indefectibility quote. 
This is because the church of October 27th, 1958, before electing John the 23rd, is numerically one and the same church as that which existed on October 28th, 1958, after electing John the 23rd. And the church of 1958 is numerically one with the church that existed in January of 1966. Likewise, the church of 1966 is numerically one with the church of the apostles, as well as the church of today. They also throw in a kind of sort of related argument. Since the set of Acontis sects didn't arise until the 70s and the heresy happened sometime between 1958 and 1965, where was the true visible church in the interim? I think it was in church purgatory. Oh, that's my guess. I didn't it's think about it. church purgatory. Yeah. I'm not sure how that's going to fit in with all this. I think the confusion arises from numerically the number numer- or the word numerically. Well, I think it's I think the idea is because, you know, if someone if someone expressed the heresy that the band yes of today is different than the band yes okay. of the 60s. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It's no, it's numerically one. It's just like the Dylan that woke up in bed this morning is numerically identical to the Dylan speaking to you right now. But this is all an amuse bouche of doctrine because it's with apostolicity in government that the real problems come in for set of Acontism and will lead them to some rather strange theories, which we will absolutely discuss shortly. To recap, what apostolicity in government means is that, quote, the church is always ruled by pastors who form one and the same juridical person with the apostles. In other words, it is always ruled by pastors who are the apostles' legitimate successors. So, what makes a bishop a legitimate Successor. That's the key word here is legitimate. To answer that, we need to dive into the distinction between the power of orders and the power of jurisdiction. When a person is ordained as a deacon, priest, or bishop, they receive the power of orders. This leaves a permanent mark on a man's soul that cannot be taken away. In fact, quote, even the reprobate clergy retains this permanent character as they are punished in hell. So do you think Salza and Cisco think set of a contest like Chicada, Lane, Sanborn will, will be burning in hell when they die? Yes, I'm okay. pretty sure they do. Because wow, I mean, intense. I'm pretty sure they say other place in the, in the book that you, you can only get salvation through the church. Mm. And so they're not doing that clearly. Mm. Wow. I, I think they might have a few ways to get out of that, but I don't think they can Hmm. i think ultimately yeah i think they think they're going to hell interesting and so are we yeah that's true we'll see him there hope he brings a meatloaf yeah that's what i was thinking (laughs) there's no meatloaf in hell unfortunately so it's definitely it's gonna be it's gonna be bad that sucks the power of orders allows bishops to consecrate other bishops and ordain other priests and allows priests to among other things say a valid mass this is all true even when bishops and priests have left the church their acts will be illicit but still valid due to the permanent mark on their soul. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know. It's weird to me that, that these reprobate bishops can teach valid Catholic teachings with full legitimacy, yet they burn forever in hell when they die. Well, no, see, they aren't legitimate. Oh, right. They're just That's true. valid. Just valid. That's right. I'm getting confused on language. Yep. It's, it's hard stuff. Yep. It's hard stuff because cat. So for example, one way I saw to differentiate a merely valid mass from a legitimate one mm-hmm. is actually this explanation I found on the Catholicism subreddit regarding the Eucharist. And it goes like this, quote, Christ really becomes present on the altar, but he's not happy about it. So another good example uh, here are baptisms. So if you are baptized in a Protestant denomination, you don't have to get rebaptized to convert ah, to Catholicism. To know, Your baptism is still valid. Yeah, but it was illicit 
because it was outside the true church. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, plus, in Protestantism, at least in like evangelical circles, we get baptized after we've been saved. So you're much older when that happens. You're not an infant. Yeah. So I guess this is more the mainline Protestants mm-hmm. who still often do the, the baby baptism. Yeah. Now, okay, so that's all the power of orders. So the power of orders, it gives you the, the valid, the validity. The power of jurisdiction, on the other hand, requires a legitimate superior and is not permanent. Mm. The power of jurisdiction is needed for the sacraments of penance and matrimony, and penance needs both. What matters for us is that legitimate successors of the apostles require both orders and jurisdiction. A consecrated bishop who apostatizes retains the order, but not the jurisdiction, and is therefore not a legitimate successor. And as usual, because they love the material formal language here, non-legitimate bishops are material successors to the apostles, but not formal Mm. successors. Okay, That doesn't really matter. Basically, if there's going to be an apostolic church, there's got to be legitimate bishops. Got it. All right. So how does one get jurisdiction to be legitimate? So we need legitimate bishops. They need jurisdiction. How do you get that? Well, unfortunately for the set of a contest, jurisdiction comes from the Pope. Uh, Quote, too bad. <laughs> because the church is by divine institution, a monarchical society, only the head of the society, the Pope, receives his authority immediately and directly from Christ. Uh, you know, why don't the set of a contest just say that empty space in the chair in Rome is the Pope? I mean, oh. technically, it's not really empty space. There's like dust, air particles and such. Or another option, if, if they, you know, if that's too absurd for them, why don't they just make the chair itself the new Pope? Go crazy. Have fun with your obscure Catholic beliefs, I say. Why not? I, I don't see why why they don't do that, because yeah. uh, the chair will last for a really long time and then they can worry right. about getting a human pope much later. Right. So besides the turning the literal chair into the pope <laughs> theory, this kind of leaves Sedevacontus in a bad place. Quote, now, because only a pope can grant jurisdiction, if Pius Twelfth were the last true pope, as most Sedevacontus claim, then there are no longer any bishops at all. Oh currently in charge of dioceses who possess jurisdiction. This would mean that legitimate apostolic succession would not even be found in the one and only church that claims Mm. to possess bishops who received their jurisdiction from a pope, which means the mark of apostolicity is no more, which is a problem. You can't say. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that when you're a Catholic. So this is a problem. So how do we solve it? Let's go on. We're solution oriented, not problem oriented. One way to solve this problem is suggested by John Lane, a solution which even the authors admit is creative, even if it ultimately fails. And it goes like this. In order for a bishop to retire, that retirement has to be accepted by the Pope. But in case you haven't been paying attention, we haven't had a Pope in quite a long time, uh, unfortunately. That means that all those bishops only think they retired and are actually still bishops with full orders and jurisdiction provided by an honest-to-goodness real pope. In other words, the gates of hell have not prevailed against the church because there are still bishops with jurisdictions still out there. They just don't know it. (laughs) Holy shit, Dylan, this sounds like a great new reality show, like Bigfoot Hunters or Ghost Adventures. You know, we know there are bishops still roaming their homes at night. We track these elusive creatures down, we film them. I think it could be done. Yeah, we just like we just need like we need like a uh, camo pants and <laughs> shotguns. And, like I smell incense out there. I bet I bet they're here. Look at him thinking he's retired, roaming around in his bedroom. Now, so what? What should we think about this view? Well, none other 
than meatloaf lover himself, Father Chicada, thought John Lane's theory was just plain bad and dubbed it the Bishop in the Woods thesis. <laughs> Which is also going to be the name of the new show (laughs) on the Discovery Channel, The Bishop in the Woods. So what's wrong with this thesis, according to Jakarta? First, because no one knows where these bishops are, they surely aren't visible, which Mm. seems to be a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. Second, the mark of apostolicity has to be recognized, but no one can find these bishops, so therefore they can't be recognized, which does seem to be like a problem. There's also the problem that Lane hasn't shown that any of these bishops are actually out there which is especially hard to do since they would have to be very old. As the authors put it, quote, Now, dear reader, what seems more likely? That John Lane will prove that there is a Pius XII bishop consecrated six decades ago, which would put him well into his 90s, if not over 100 years old, who is both a set of a contest and who was never a member of the new church, or that the set of a contest position is wrong. So in a rare moment here, the authors think Chikata is right mm. in his criticism of Lane. They also think that Chikata's solution is even worse. <laughs> Chikata argues that a bishop or priest does not receive his jurisdiction from the Pope, but from God directly, at least in these extraordinary scenarios. But this contradicts Pope Pius XII, who said explicitly that bishops receive their jurisdiction, quote, directly from the Supreme Pontiff. And now the shoe is on the other foot as John Lane gets to make fun of Jakarta and his theory that, quote, just reeks of Protestantism. So, again, let's hear what he has to say in full, quote, private judgment, erecting ministers of Christ, no public authority involved. This is worse than Anglicanism, which at least replaced the authority of the church with secular authority. It's one thing to defend another who is under attack when the police cannot be found. It's entirely another thing to don a uniform and pose as a cop. Who's the judge of the fitness of a potential bishop? The potential bishop and his sidekick, perhaps? What's the authority of a bishop without a mission from the church? His own declarations to the effect that his gospel is the true one? How does this differ from Protestantism? Does not every apologetics manual condemn this kind of theory on every second page? Father Chikata tells us, As regards hierarchy, mission, and apostolicity, the short answer is this. He needs to give us the long answer ASAP. His short answer just opens the door to countless heresies if it isn't heretical itself. But, amazingly, Chikata's position has a worse problem, even than Protestantism, and that is that it is contradictory oh hell yeah point score for Protestantism finally yeah finally there's something worse than Protestantism in this book this is because the extraordinary jurisdiction that Chikata is talking about still depends on ordinary jurisdiction if there is no one around with ordinary jurisdiction i.e. bishops who get their jurisdiction from the pope then there is no source of extraordinary jurisdiction either. Still thinking about the retired thing. So it reminds me of an old saying, you know, if, if a bishop falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, is it really retired? I the answer don't, is I no. The answer oh, okay. is no, because the Pope didn't let him that's right. fall down in that forest. All right. So these solutions, not the best, but there are some other approaches to dealing with this general situation about the kind of the apostolicity of government. Because there's a group of set of a contests, among them Mr. Matadex, who agree with the authors about all of these points. Sadly, it leads them down a depressing path. Quote, For those in whom the disease of set of a contism has fully metastasized, all 
post-Vatican II clergy, including Eastern Rite and traditional clergy, and even the set of Acontist clergy are unauthorized shepherds who true Catholics must avoid. These set of Acontists, who are known as home aloners, refuse to receive the sacraments at all, thereby depriving themselves and their families of the ordinary means of salvation, all because of the erroneous theory they have come up with to explain the crisis in the church. These souls stay home on Sundays, reading their missal and attempting to elicit acts of perfect contrition in the hope that God will directly absolve them of their grave sins again, just like Protestants. Even though the Protestants attend church every Sunday, led by pastors, deacons, and choir leaders. So no, no hierarchy there or anything. Yeah, but that's, that is basically in the eyes of God. That's exactly the same as staying home. So you <laughs> also, might as well just not even bother. What home, so I'm seeing, a, I'm, I'm envisioning a, was a home alone three lost in heresy. Maybe that would be <laughs> a new good, a uh, great, great movie to starring, obviously Joe Pesci. So that's, yeah, Joe Pesci turns into a set of a contest priest and then he convinces Macaulay Culkin to become a set of a contest and so they know where physically he is but he is lost deep in the heresy yeah. that is set of a contest <laughs> and today we're going to end the episode with one interesting kind of side note to this because there is one last trick up the set of a contest sleeve when it comes to the lack of a church with the marks and attributes of the true church quote because their thesis reduces the visible church to a mere remnant of true believers and a hierarchy that is nowhere to be found most set of contests also attempt to justify their position by arguing that we are currently living in the end times when it is predicted that very few people will have the true faith. So this is, I have never heard this theory that you no. know going all the way to we are living in the end times in order yeah. to justify set of contism. And this theory is pretty badass, but there are two main problems with it. The first problem is um, actually something we discussed in, I believe, our fourth episode of our set of contest series is the Marian apparitions at Fatima which involve prophecies about what the end of days will look like. According to these prophecies, there will be a period of peace following the conversion of Russia to the Roman Catholic Church. And in case you haven't been paying attention, that has not happened yet. Yeah, I think the first the first thing they have to do is overthrow the church of Putin. Mm, um, yeah. So that, that has to be done. Also, we know exactly what the end times looks like. We have the Thief in the Night films from the 70s that we uh, streamed yes. on Discord. So yes, that is, exactly right. That is exactly right. Second... It goes against the book of Revelation. The authors offer an explanation from one Father Barry. Quote, Father Barry further explains that Satan will attempt to destroy the church from without by raising up Antichrist after he realizes, during the reign of peace, that he cannot destroy the church from within by modernism, homosexuality, etc. <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. Just pay attention. Anyone you see gaining popularity in the world stage named Brother Christopher, just watch out. On that note... This concludes our first episode on the true or false Pope, the anti-set of a contest, fight back. <laughs> and with that, we are done. Thank you for listening to this episode of None Dare Call It Ordinary. If you would also like to hear our weekly bonus episodes, just become a $5 a month patron over at patreon.com slash ordinary. That is also where you'll find any blog posts, pictures, and news updates to go along with our regular series. And you don't even have to be a patron to get access to all that fun stuff. You can also reach us by email at ordinary at gmail.com. Lastly, we ask for you to please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served. 